sometimes I forget that my Bible is inside a zipper case and I have to get the zipper case open and there's no way to do it quietly while Linda's reading behind. So it's, it's the adventure of being alive. You know, we realize right as we're about to do something, wait, that, that's not the right time. It's not the right time. Um, I want to, for us to approach the Gospel of John in, in, and look at it for what it is, a witness to us. We have used it for the last several weeks. We told the story of Mary's discovering the empty tomb and Jesus, who appeared to her to be the gardener. We have looked at the story of the appearance to the other disciples and then at the appearance uh, again uh, to Thomas, who uh, doubted that Jesus had appeared the first time. And we talked a little bit about that. Um, I want us to take a look, first of all, at where, uh, at, at one little piece of scripture before I read to you uh, today's passage. And the reason I want to share this with you is because I think it says something about the text we're about to read as much as the text says, perhaps. At the very end of, of John chapter 20, that's right after the Thomas story that we looked at last week, it says in verse uh, 39, uh, verse 30, not 39, verse 30, it says, Jesus performed many other signs as well, signs not recorded here in the presence of the disciples. But these have been recorded to help you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the only begotten, so that by believing you may have life in Jesus' name. Now, I reread that this week as I was preparing the sermon about John 21. And of course, I may have told you this in years past when I read you the John 21 passage, because Lord knows I've been at St. James. Uh, if I live to the end of June, I will have been here 30 years. Uh, and July 1st will be begin, the, begin my 31st year. Uh, but uh, I am certain I have talked about this, and I've talked about it a number of times. Scholars think that originally, when the book was first written, when this was transcribed down from just oral stories that were being told over and over again, that the Gospel of John ended at the end of chapter 20. And when I read you that passage, didn't it sound like the end? This is the end. Listen to these words. Jesus performed many other signs as well, signs not recorded here, in the presence of the disciples. But these have been recorded to help you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the only begotten, so that by believing you may have life in Jesus' name. The end. What I hear in those words is the end. But apparently, as someone looked at the book, they said, this is not the end. Jesus didn't stop appearing at the end of John chapter 20. John, John would tell us, John would want to say to us, by the way, John, the Gospel of John is written the latest of all the Gospels, maybe the latest of all the books in, that made it into the New Testament. It's written probably in the early 100s, almost 100 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and his life. And so they knew that Jesus was a part of the community as late as in the early 100s. So maybe the person came back at some point who 
jotted this all down, the scribe or whoever looked and said, we can't end there. And the reason we can't end there is because it sounds like it's done. There's a lot more we could have said about what Jesus did before, but we've said enough. And the writer says, hmm, well, maybe that's not enough. Because even though that was enough, Jesus keeps on showing up. So we begin today, and our story today comes to us from John chapter 21. The stuff that is after the end. The PS, if you will. The postlude, or the postlogue, or whatever comes after the epilogue, I guess. The epilogue is the end. And the epilogue says at the beginning of it this. Later, Jesus again was manifested to the disciples at Lake Tiberias. This is how the appearance took place. Assembled there were Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's children, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. We'll join you, they replied, and went off together in their boat. All through the night, they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus was standing on the shore, though none of the disciples knew it was Jesus. He said to them, have you caught nothing, my friends? Not a thing, they answered. Cast your net off the starboard side, Jesus suggested, and you'll find something. So they made a cast and caught so many fish that they couldn't, uh, they couldn't haul the net in. Then the disciples, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, cried out to Peter, it's the teacher. <laughs> Upon hearing this, Simon Peter threw on his cloak because he was fishing naked and jumped into the water. Meanwhile, the other disciples brought the boat to shore, towing the net full of fish. They were not far from land, no more than a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw that a charcoal fire had been prepared with fish and some bread already grilled. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus told them. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled ashore the net, which was loaded with huge fish, 153 of them. In spite of the great number, the net was not torn. Come and eat your meal, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Savior. Jesus came over, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This marked the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after being raised from the dead. This is the gospel for this morning. Praise be to God. Well, that's an interesting epilogue, isn't it? And it's not even finished. There's more. We'll get to that next week. But what an interesting epilogue. Jesus has appeared to Mary in the garden. Jesus has appeared to his disciples behind locked doors, except Thomas was somewhere else. We don't know where he was hiding, but he was hiding somewhere else, apparently. And then Jesus shows up again just for Thomas. And then the writer of the book says, there's more to say, but I'm not saying it. There's nothing left. And then suddenly, after there's nothing left, there's something else to say. A third appearance. Uh, 
after, you know, after seeing Jesus a couple of times, I get the sense that disciples didn't really know what to do with themselves. Like most of us. When you come to faith, when you finally say yes to Jesus in your life, or you, you slowly, incrementally say yes to Jesus in your life, whatever way it happens that you say yes, if you ever say yes, uh, then it's like, now what? You know, I told you last week that one of the things I did, you know, I thought I was supposed to do, and I'm not sure that anybody ever told me this, but I thought I just needed to know as much as I possibly could. So let's memorize some scripture. Let's know all the answers to all the questions. Let's figure out exactly who God is and fit that God into a neat little box. And then I've got the box to carry around with me. Lo and behold, someone comes along later and say, it's your job to convince everybody else to love Jesus. That's your job to convince them to love Jesus. Uh, and so here's how you do it. Here are four spiritual laws. Convince them that they're slime balls and that God uh, wants to throw them away, but because of Jesus, you're not going to get thrown away and come to the side. I don't find that those four spiritual laws work all very well for me. Make me feel kind of uncomfortable. But I tried it for a while. And all I really did was alienate a bunch of people as I tried to rationally argue them into the faith. So what do you do once you know that the resurrection is true? Once you've experienced it and you really realize, I can't show you the resurrection I've experienced. I can't even really always put it into words, but I know, not just because I've read a book, not just because I've read this book that talks about it not once, not twice, not three times, not just four times, even though there's four Gospels about the resurrection. It talks about it over and over again that we experience Christ in everyday life. Resurrection is real. Not just because that book says it, though, but because in my own life I have experienced resurrection. I have experienced the power of resurrection. From my own brokenness and my own little deaths, I have experienced resurrection such that even though I cannot describe it to you in words, at least not words that clearly put it, I know what I know what I know what I know. And even when there aren't words, I know it. I know I've experienced the reality of the presence of Christ in my life. Resurrection is true. Now, I've told a bit of this story before and said some of it before, but, uh, and, and maybe I'm repeating myself, and that's just the way that it is when you stay in the same place for 30 years. You just get to get a little repeat. Last year, at this time, Linda was still not home from the hospital. She had gone in on Easter Sunday, April the 4th, 2021. And for a period of time, until the 15th, of April, she didn't know who I was when I came to visit her. And uh, she was very sick, and they couldn't figure out what it was. And they ran every kind of test known to humanity. And they put her on broad-spectrum antibiotics, antifungals, and uh, antivirals to try to kill off whatever it was, because they were sure that that's what it was. I have a 58-page report from the infectious disease doctor of all the things they tried to figure out about what was going on. And essentially, in the end, was inconclusive. <laughs> 58 pages of inclus un unconclusivity. Uh, 
inconclusiveness. It was quite an adventure. And during that time, every day, my heart broke a little. Each day got a little bit harder. And at the same time, I knew in my brokenness that I was not alone. And it wasn't just because for the first week, Hannah Grace was here and Joshua was here. Uh, and, and, they were, and when Hannah had to fly back to Atlanta, because she was a teacher and she had to go back to school, uh, she instructed carefully her brother Joshua, as older siblings are wont to do, you better check on dad every day. We got to make sure he eats. Like there was any danger I was going to stop. So Josh came over every day, checked on me, made sure I was eating food, uh, even asked me, said, dad, let's go out to dinner tonight. That way I'll know you have, he didn't say, that way I'll know you had food. <laughs> but we would eat together uh, at, for, for the next week. But still every night when Joshua went home or even the week when Hannah was there and Hannah went down to the guest bedroom to sleep and I went up to my room, there was an aloneness that I hadn't felt before. And yet in the midst of all of that, this breaking open, I always knew inside that I was being sustained and loved that there was no doubt that that same God who was sustaining and loving me absolutely loved Linda. And that whatever came of this, God's love wins. Whatever came of this. And so what I found to be true is the love I thought I had for Linda didn't even begin to touch how much love I really had for Linda. It broke me open to realize how much and to what extent that I could describe my love for Linda didn't even cover it. And I knew if that was true of my love for Linda, that God's love is bigger than that. Because I'm one finite dude. I am one finite dude. And God is infinite. God is eternal. God is in every moment of my life, and that presence held me up. And it was a moment of awakening for me. One of the interesting lines from Psalm 139 that we saw at the beginning. When I awake, you are always near me. Spoken about God. Now, when I first read that, when I first heard that, I thought that when I awake, like when I go to bed at night, go to sleep, REM, wake up in the morning, there's God. I don't think that's what it's about. It may be about that too, because God is certainly there when you awake, but God's there when you're asleep too. I think it's talking about spiritual asleepness and spiritual awakeness. You know, Jesus told stories over and over again, parables about keeping awake, keeping awake. And we see at the beginning of chapter 21 in the Gospel of John that the disciples are not awake. They are out fishing, doing, they are stuck to their patterns, 
Richard talks about the patterns all the time. They are stuck in their patterns. I know this. I know how to do this. I know how to cook bread. I know how to, I, I know how to go out on the, uh, you know, on the lake and catch some fish. I know how to do these things. I get stuck in the patterns, and I am so stuck in the pattern that if God showed up and slapped me in the face, I would look the other direction because I'm not awake. The spiritual journey of faith, of following Christ, is learning to be awake in every moment. And not a single one of us will ever get to a place where we are. Even the deepest mystics are not awake all the time. But we got to try. We got to try. The disciples spend the first verses of this story asleep to who is on the beach right where they are in an ordinary setting because we expect God to show up in extraordinary places. If you come on Sunday morning, I certainly hope when you come on Sunday morning in person or online, you expect God to show up because that's what I expect every week. In weird, tiny, unexplainable ways, God's going to show up in the bread, in the cup, in the conversation, in the songs, in the video, in the prayer, God is going to show up because God always shows up. But I don't always show up. I don't always show up. But what if I learn to expect that God's going to show up not only here, but everywhere else? Because I think half the reason why you don't expect to see Jesus on the beach while you're fishing is because you forgot Jesus can show up anywhere. He made his appearances when we were locked in a room somewhere. He made an appearance when I said yes and invited him to be a part of my life. As if you could have ever kicked him out to begin with. You just recognized he was already there. Jesus shows up every second of every nanosecond of your life. There is never a time that he's not there. But when you awake, he's near you. When the disciples caught a glimpse of one of the signs of Christianity, abundance. One of the signs of Christianity is abundance. Over and over again, abundance. And it's not a bunch of stuff. We've made it that way in America. We measure it. You know, the prosperity gospel is all about if you play your cards right with Jesus, he's going to give you a pile of money. And that is not what the gospel says anywhere, but it sure makes a lot of sense to Americans, especially when we follow a capitalistic system. It makes a lot of sense to us. And the rest of the world, too. Abundance is about recognizing, I've got breath now. This is more than I ever had. This is more than I ever will have. This moment is enough. It's not just enough, it's abundant. In this moment, I've got life, and life is full. So the disciples are wandering around, still asleep. Jesus calls out, hey, did you catch anything? Fishermen hate that when you call them, and fisherwomen too. Call out, did you catch anything? Especially if they haven't caught anything. You can almost hear Peter, he liked to, he liked to curse a little bit. You can almost hear under his breath him saying something about Jesus on the shore. 
How about you pull out your net and put it on the other side? You'll catch something on that side. Oh, right. Yeah. Here he is, expert over here. Cast over there instead of over here. Sure, we'll drop it in. And they catch 153 fish. I don't know what the number 153 means. It may mean nothing at all. It certainly doesn't mean anything to me. It just means a lot. To fish all night and catch nothing in the net and to drop it over the other side and suddenly, and how far, how wide is a boat? I don't know. Let's say five feet wide. This is the first century. It's not very big. Five feet wide. So move five feet from this side to this side. Drop in your net and 153 fish. Abundance. And suddenly John catches it. Jesus did not pick people because they were sharpest tools in the shed. Jesus picked them because they were people like you and me. You know, sometimes I'm a pretty sharp tool. And sometimes I'm not. Some people would just say, I'm a tool. But uh, that's a side issue. The truth is, Jesus picked us all. Picked us all because he loved us. And he picked these 12, not because they were amazing, but because they were everyone, just like you and me. And what made him amazing is that they left everything and followed him. And even when they were asleep, he loved them. Even when you're asleep, God loves you. And I'm not just talking about sleeping in your bed at night. I'm talking about asleep to God's presence everywhere. God still loves you. And it took a pile of fish for John to realize who it was. It's the teacher! Yeah, duh. Now you see, we can't say duh. You know why we can't say duh? Because it told us right in the text, Jesus was on shore. When Jesus appeared another time. So we were cheating. We were cheating. Don't think, oh, look, I got it. Those disciples are living on the edge. They're, they're just not awake, and I am. Nope. You and I are just as, just as asleep going through our daily patterns without paying any attention. And John wakes up. First one. Oh my gosh, look at this abundance. What is that a sign of? God's kingdom. What is that a sign of? Jesus, that's Jesus on the, on the shore. Peter, who was fishing naked. Uh, don't ask me. First century, apparently, it just meant you didn't have all these robes to get in the way while you're trying to pull in your stuff, I guess. And so, puts on his clothes, jumps in the water, and swims up. And, you know, the rest is a story of beauty and God's servitude. A second sign of what the kingdom looks like is self-emptying service. Here's Jesus, the risen Jesus, and what's he doing? He's cooking breakfast. He didn't wait for everybody to come down and say, hey, Peter, why don't you start a fire? John, how about you start cooking? Thomas, you uh, go get some of those fish and bring it over here. And you, Nathaniel, do this. And James and John, you do this. He didn't do that. He did the same thing he did in John chapter 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. He cooked them breakfast cooked him breakfast, and he broke it and gave it to him. And if they didn't already know who he was, in the breaking of the bread and the giving of the fish, 
they did then. The call of this text is for us to wake up, for us to not think the story was done 2,000 years ago or at the end of chapter 20 when the book apparently originally ended. It's to recognize there are going to be more appearances. And if we wake up, if we wake up, we might catch a glimpse. But it's almost got to be an ambush. You can't plan for it. Okay, today I am going out into the yard and I'm not leaving the yard until I see Jesus. Make up your mind, go ahead, and maybe you will. It could be a surprise. But more likely one day when you're not paying attention and suddenly for a second your eyes open and you realize that that server who recognized the pain in your face when you were picking up your food was Jesus for you for just a moment. And they said, is everything okay, honey? Are you okay? Jesus, right there, among the least of us, and in places we just don't expect. How many of you expect your short order cook to be Jesus? Oh, I thought for a moment, Joy is adjusting the camera, but I saw her arm go up. I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> Joy knows that her short order cook is Jesus. And now I will be in trouble with Joy after worship for calling her out. The truth is, Jesus would love for us to wake up. God would love for us to wake up and catch a glimpse of him everywhere that we go to recognize that in the abundance of the life we've been given, and it may not look like much stuff compared to everybody else down the block, but we have consciousness. We have our own thoughts. We have each heartbeat that's given us. We have breath. St. James tries to make sure that anybody on the West End who needs food has access to it. We try to make sure of all of those things so that people can recognize their abundance is not in the amount of stuff that we have, but in the infinite love God pours out on us in any moment. Wake up, recognize the abundance, and use whatever abundance you have to empty yourself and care for the other. That's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus has invited us to do. The whole journey of Christian faith is waking up to the presence of Jesus in every breath, in every heartbeat, in every moment. Every one of my favorite singers, Alana Lewandowski, sings a song. Every breath is grace. Every breath is grace. It's a chant, so that just keeps going on in different, uh, different harmonies. Every breath is grace. Grace just means gift. Every breath is gift. I'm so thankful all of you have breath, that you're drawing breath, that you came here, that you came here online, that you are the gift that you are already, and that God sees in you all of your preciousness and loves you without condition.
Wake up. Keep awake. For the presence of Jesus in your life, wherever you go. The Gospel of John for us this morning. So, one of the things we like to do at St. James is to pray. Any number of prayer requests on my, uh, on my list, uh, I will just lift up a couple of them. Especially this week, my heart has been with the Alberts. At uh, Craig's sudden death several weeks ago, um, especially, you know, Doris and Dick came up here to help be with Craig, to help him uh, navigate his life. Uh, and that's why we got to know Doris and Dick. But I was thinking about, uh, about Craig a couple of times this week. I touched a couple of different books that over time he gave me and talked to me about as a part of worship. And so Craig was on my heart. So I want us to keep praying um, for all those who knew and loved Craig at the time of loss. Um, I, I want to ask for prayers for my sister, whose name is Ellen. Uh, yesterday, uh, I only read this via Facebook, so you know, this is a post. She turned her head and she lost all of the sight in one eye. It just went away and it didn't come back, it began to come back incrementally. By this morning, she's seeing all right, but they admitted her to the hospital because they're trying to figure out what happened. And so I wouldn't mind, uh, I have two relatively young nephews, uh, one that just crossed over into uh, Boy Scouts, so that tells you his age, Ledetu just became a Boy Scout from being a Cub Scout. We blow. And so I want, uh, I want us to keep my, uh, my sister's family, and yes, that includes me, uh, in your prayers uh, as they try to figure out what's going on with her. I want you to be in prayer for uh, six young adults who are getting ready to trans transition out of the fellows program at Appalachia Service Project for Gabby and Molly and Katie and Haley and Manon and Megan, um, who are about to leave this program that they've given their life to for the last nine months and um, move on in different directions. Megan's repeating, doing another year in the fellowship, but um, each one of them is making these transitions. I want us to pray for them. God's blessing be upon them. For all those who are struggling in the world, and, you know, uh, the one that makes the news for us is in Ukraine, but it's not good in, uh, in South Sudan right now. Uh, it is still not good in Burkina Faso. Uh, there are a number of places in the world where people are being hurt and persecuted and violence is being perpetrated in ugly ways, and we don't always hear about them. So I want us to pray for them. And for the moment... That's going to be enough. We're going to take a moment to pray in silence. I will briefly pray for us aloud. And I hope that you will open your hearts and hold up these names that I have lifted out to you and the ones that you brought with you. Um, I want us to pray for Mark and Joy. They're traveling later this week. Um, 
Mark's dad died some time back, but because it's north of here, being able to have a funeral means you have to wait until it's uh, warmer. Uh, and so they're traveling to celebrate Mark's dad's life. So I want us to pray for them as well. And so hold up these folks in your hearts, trusting that God's spirit will do what it will, that it will be unleashed because of our prayers in ways we can't even imagine. It changes the very fabric of the spirituality of the universe. I believe that. Um, and then we'll end with the Lord's Prayer, a version of which will be on the screen, but you pray it in your language or in the way you know it or on the screen, whatever you want. So let's enter into a moment of silent prayer together. Here we are, Lord, your people. We lift to you all those who are hurting in the world. We open our hearts to that hurting and carry it together because that's part of our work as the church. We carry the pain of the world with you in our connection to you. We, pay for, we pray for Craig's family. We pray for Ellen and her family. We pray for Mark and his family. We pray for the West End of Alexandria. We pray for whatever places that people are joining us from across the world online. We pray for peoples who are being hurt by violence. Burkina Faso, South Sudan, the Ukraine, and other hotspots around the world. We pray for those who are making transitions in life, whatever those transitions may be. We pray and name before you Gabby and Haley and Molly and Katie and Manan and Megan. We name before you Megan and James and Galen and ourselves. Help us to be open and awake to your son's presence wherever he shows up. We ask it all in the holy and precious name of your son who taught us that we could use this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever.